Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast of the session Power, Control and Domestic Violence, featuring Jess Hill in conversation with Margot Saville, recorded live at the 2019 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Hi, everybody. Thanks very much for coming out in this um, rather rainy morning. Um, I'm here, my name's Marco Saville, and I'm here today with Jess Hill, uh, the author of See What You Made Me Do, uh, a very important book about domestic abuse. And um, I've read this book twice, and I can heartily recommend it. And if anybody would like to buy a copy of the book and have it signed by Jess, there'll be a book signing after this. We're also going to make time for 10 minutes of questions. If anyone would like to make a quest, ask a question, and I would respectfully ask if, uh, uh, for the sake of the whole audience here, if you could please make it a question. Um, that would be hugely helpful for time management and for everybody. Um, it's a very important book because it's an issue we know well about. It's an issue I feel that we uh, know a great deal about already. And, but this book really expands on the information that we have hugely. Uh, we all know that one woman a week is killed, is murdered by some man she's been intimate with. We know the statistics, we know the facts. This book goes into why it happens, how it happens, and also offers up solutions, evidence-based solutions to what can happen, uh, which is not just about raising an awareness or more campaigns on television, um, actual things that can happen to send this problem away. It's a public health crisis. If one man a week was being killed by falling down the stairs, you know, the government would have solved this problem a long time ago. Um, so, um, Jess, just to start with, can you tell me why you started writing this book? Sure. And just to say hi to everybody, thank you so much for showing up. And um, and just looking out across all your faces, it's I think quite a it's a radical act, turning up in public and us all talking about domestic abuse in public. Um, so I just think that this is amazing, and we shouldn't take this for granted because for most of our history, this has been a very secret issue that's created a lot of shame. And this is a whole part of the process of decoupling domestic abuse from the shame that victims feel um, as a result. So thank you. Um, so why did I write the book? It's a good question. It's a question I ask myself sometimes after three and a half years of writing it. Um, I guess firstly, I'd spent a year writing about domestic abuse for various different outlets, ABC, The Monthly, and especially about the family law courts and the way that they respond to allegations of abuse and, and children um, who are being victimised. And I think by the end of that year, I was just, I was so angry that so many women and children felt like nobody could understand what they'd been through, that this was something that affected one in four women in Australia. It's affected countless children, grown men who've grown up with it as boys, men who've experienced it as victims themselves. This is a, one of the well, if not the most pressing safety issue of our times, and yet we know so little about it. And the fact that every time I looked into it further, another one of my preconceptions was overturned, another assumption, another stereotype. 
And I thought, what hope do we have of actually understanding this and grappling with it if we can't understand how it works, both for the, if we're in that situation ourselves or if a family member is or just as a general societal issue. So that's how I started was I wanted to make really clear what happens in a domestic abuse relationship, the fact that it's it's not often just that reactive violence, that it can be a whole system of domination and control that is that is that is drawn up very slowly, gradually and and terribly. And then as I started really understanding how, how it was that power and control worked in domestic situations, how and why victims made certain choices, I thought, well, it's not enough just to understand how women feel and why they feel that way. We've got to understand why guys do this. And fortunately, I'm married to a psychotherapist who has a marvelous amount of insight and um, and was really through my daily conversations with my partner, David, about, about guys where they come from, these like deep-seated senses of rage and shame, which we'll talk about later, that made me realize I had to go back to the beginning of what happens to guys, maybe who knows how many, we don't have a count on the number of perpetrators, but you can assume if one in four women, it's a large number of men in this country who are otherwise normal, law-abiding guys in a lot of cases, I needed to find out why they did it. Why do they stay? Why do they prevent their victims from leaving when for all intents and purposes, it looks like they hate that person so deeply they would destroy them. Why won't they let them leave? You know, and so that took me down this really deep rabbit hole that was so profoundly disturbing because actually answering that question requires you to, to confront some really dark parts of human nature that I wasn't really prepared for. Um, uh, Jess and I were talking earlier that the first chapter of the book she talks about definitions and you know for so long we've talked about domestic violence she uses the term domestic abuse um, Jess can you explain the difference and why you've used domestic abuse yeah so often you know as I was writing the book I'd occasionally turn up to um, you know panel situations like this and there'd, there'd inevitably be a question from the audience that would be like well how are you going to deal with the fact that a lot of domestic abuse is not physical and I'd sort of hedge around the issue and say, well, I'm going to explain that. But nothing really felt adequate because there's certain, I mean, you know, you can say studies, but anyone who's been through this knows that the psychological abuse, the deprivation, the eradication of the sense of self-worth, the total domination that can occur in these relationships is way worse than the physical injury for a lot of women, for the vast majority of women that that is the hardest thing to overcome, not to mention the fact that for a lot of women, once they've left the relationship, there's an ongoing sense of abuse through the legal system that may not end for decades, um, as well as stalking and all the rest of it. So about, this was only a few weeks before we finished the book, I read this article by this woman, Yasmin Khan, who works in Brisbane with survivors, um, particularly Muslim survivors and migrant women, and she said that we need to change the language. We need to call this what it is, which is abuse. It's not necessarily violence. If we narrow it into violence, then we only include the people who can relate to being hit or being somehow physically imposed on. And everyone else is left wondering, well, is that me? I, I don't know if I fit into domestic violence. And therefore, it takes them longer to realise the danger that they're in. The UK police have done the same thing. They've changed their language from domestic violence to domestic abuse because they've actually made the kind of controlling behaviours that are in the, some of the most 
dangerous relationships, coercive control. They've made that a crime. Those behaviours aren't a crime in Australia at the moment. What we have is violence as a crime. We have stalking as a crime. But we don't have the full web of control and domination as a crime. In the UK, they do now. And so they changed it to abuse. And they realise, you know, police now can investigate the full arc of an abusive relationship. Victims can recognise themselves within that term because we don't call it, you know, what happens to children, we don't call that child violence because we include things like neglect, maltreatment, all the rest of it. If we called it child violence, a lot of those things would be left out. And that's why I think we need to change the term, even though it almost makes it sound more benign than domestic violence, which is a, is a problem. Yeah. English language is a problem. It's restricting, you know. <laughs> but we need to find a way to be as inclusive as possible. I think that's more important than having the term be really sharp and powerful. We need it to be inclusive. Um, and can you describe some of the elements of coercive control? Because I, I read it through several times and thought, oh, wow, I, I didn't know that. It, you know, it's something that forces you to reassess your own relationships with the people around you. Okay, so coercive control is a system that sneaks up very gradually and it's not native only to domestic abuse relationships. It's a system of control, domination and a, a training of someone into compliance that's used from everywhere from prisoner of war camps to religious cults, uh, from pimps, um, etc. Anyone who wants to con- to basically get full domination and control over another human being uses very similar tactics. And essentially, what we know about the system of coercive control, it was established in the 1950s by a US social scientist who wanted to find out why all these American soldiers had cooperated to an unprecedented extent with um, their captors in North Korean camps. And he went and interviewed them and found out and basically wrote this whole chart based on their experience. And this is what victims of domestic abuse or victims of coercive control within domestic abuse experience. The first is there's the establishment of trust. So in the prisoner of war camps, when so, you know, these American soldiers, they knew that the enemy was approaching them. However, and they knew that they were in trouble, right? But... When the communists came to, ca- to capture them, they slapped them on the back, called them comrades, said we're friends of the workers of America, offered them cigarettes. And there was that first little sort of just a twist on that captivity where it's like, well, I'm in danger, but this person seems like they don't mean me any harm. Maybe they'll look after me during the period of my incarceration. In an abusive relationship, what you hear from a lot of women say is that it's like love bombing. It's the most intense love they've ever experienced. They feel so special. They feel like they're the centre of that person, that man's attention. Um, so that establishment of love and trust in the beginning is essential. During that period of intimacy, that's when we divulge our secrets. We expose ourselves because we're we're going towards a type of oneness with that other person. So we need to expose ourselves in order to get that type of connection. Unfortunately, it's during that period that the perpetrator knowingly or unknowingly essentially collates the sorts of information that will become a blueprint for their abuse, Um, the personal secrets, the fears, the desires that they can sort of manipulate in order to take control of this person. So once that love and trust is established, you get a few pretty common um, techniques or behaviours depending on how instrumental they are. The first is to be isolated. That isolation might be um, physical, it might be psychological, it might just be that your supportive connections are taken away. It could be that the perpetrator colludes 
with family members who have, you know, abused that that woman in um in childhood, and therefore isolates them even further because it's like nobody will believe them if their own family is against them. Um, then you have this thing called monopolizing perception, which is essentially to turn around everything that is happening onto the partner. Say. So, well, you know, you've got a lot of things you need to deal with. You've got a lot of problems. The reason I act like this is because you do this. And over time, the woman starts to believe it, especially if her partner is the kind of guy who's really loved and adored by friends and family and only exhibits these behaviours in the relationship. Then you've got this, uh, the, what's called inducing debility and exhaustion. And that's basically to make the woman so tired that she can bar- barely understand what's happening to her. That can be from literally from keeping them awake at night like you know so many women talk about being pushed out of bed in the middle of the night for no, for no reason that they can possibly understand being kept up because they're being hectored or through gaslighting and for those who are not aware I mean gaslighting was going to be the Macquarie Dictionary word of the year um, a couple of years ago uh, so I think that's really entered the lexicon but if you're not aware gaslighting is essentially where the perpetrator tries to deny the reality of the victim and for example in one case a woman on her first date she was walking along with this man who would become her partner and she felt him push her over. But in her mind, she's like, he can't have pushed me over and he denied it. And those sorts of things happened throughout her relationship and she continually denied that it was happening and only later realised that was all intentional, that was part of invading her space. Another woman had her keys continually moved, had her wallet moved, so that she started to go, I can't remember where I put that, I must be going insane. And then her perpetrator was like, why don't you go and get some anti-anxiety medication or something for depression? And then he was like, when, they, when, she, when she sort of threatened to expose him and take him to court, he said he'd, he'd held on to the prescription so that he could show that to the court to show that she was an unreliable witness. So he'd set it up the whole time. So that type of gaslighting basically makes a woman feel like she's insane. She can't trust her own instincts. And so she starts to really, I guess, prioritise the, the perspective of the perpetrator. And then just briefly, alternating punishments with rewards. So making sure that there's always, even though, even as the woman feels like her sense of self-worth is being totally taken away, there's that moment of sunshine and that moment of grace where it's like, this could all go back to what it was. I, I, we could have that love that we had before. And that keeps her locked in that situation. Then there's the um, enforcing trivial demands, basically setting rules, arbitrary rules, you never know what's coming. The woman starts to walk on eggshells. She needs to try to think about what the, what the next rule is that's going to be set because if she doesn't, she'll be punished. So she's constantly just trying to see the world through the eyes of the perpetrator. And you can see that gradually she is becoming less and less centred in herself. And she is basically becoming, her mindset is being replaced with the perpetrator's mindset. And she's getting further and further away from her own instinct and what she would do to save herself. And then this whole system is really kept together by degradation to the point where the perpetrator may threaten the woman into abusing her own children or enabling or, or turning a blind eye to the abuse of her children. They may, um, they certainly, you know, in one situation I looked at, the man, once they'd had a baby, uh, the father was teaching the baby how to call mother um, slut instead of mum. Um that level of degradation starts to become just an everyday occurrence to the point where they just feel like they're dirt and no one will ever want to help them, let alone believe them. And then threats. And the whole system of coercive control is held together by fear and the believable threat of violence. So the threat is usually not just to the woman, it's to her family, friends, pets, 
you name it. It's like if you leave or if you tell anybody, then everything you know and love will be destroyed. Oh, and the other one is demonstrating omnipotence. And they do that through anything through just like text messaging dozens of times a day to the point where the woman can never feel like she has a sense of autonomy through to installing surveillance apps in secret on phones and installing GPS trackers in cars. And I, I spoke to one guy who used to work in the correction, in Corrections Victoria and is now working with the Salvation Army with refuges to basically um, make sure that women are not being tracked. 80 to 85% of women who were in this refuge that he was working with had tracking devices installed either on their phones or in their cars. So this is a massive problem. It's incredibly cheap. You can buy a $10 tracking device on eBay that's, that's accurate within a few feet. You know, so, you know, I, I was at a shelter in Bendigo and they gave, they called us and said, and they called us, they called the woman that I was sitting there with um, and said, there's a guy running up and up, up and down the lane behind the shelter and it's the partner of someone who's, he can't know that she's in here. How does he know? And, you know, the woman I was with is like, well, you need to check the car or you need to throw out the phone. I mean, that guy had tracked the woman to that place. Um, so that whole system is held together with fear but not, not once in that system of coercive control that the US social scientist Biederman identified, there's not one category for physical violence. Physical violence is not necessary. It's not actually even a smart way for abusers to keep this system of control together because it's a way for them to be caught. It's also a way to alert a woman to the fact that she's being abused. So women constantly say, I just wish he'd hit me so I could prove that it's real. Because otherwise, it just seems it's all inside her and no one's going to believe it. It's insane what she's going through. So that's basically a wrap-up of coercive control. Um, and <laughs> um, one of the most interesting parts of the book I found was when you talked about those two, uh, you know, models of two, – two distinct models of looking at why the men do this, and you describe this as the psychopathology model and the patriarchy model, and which is absolutely fascinating. So can you describe to the audience what they are? Yeah, so the trouble with understanding domestic abuse and, and our way of coming at it is that there's been a number of factions that have been at war with each other for a long time. Um, you know, the, the world of psychiatry has a deep and very disturbing history of misogyny, um, it's long blamed women for their own abuse and I, I guess in, the, in more modern times it's adapted to say, well, okay, well, we need to find out what's wrong with this man because this man obviously has something wrong with him, otherwise he wouldn't be doing it. So what does this man have, a mental illness? Was he abused as a child? There needs to be something wrong with this man. The feminist model or the patriarchy model, but, the, the, you know, technically the feminist model comes at it from a different direction, which is what is wrong with men? <laughs> what is wrong with men that makes it always men who are, who are you know, using these systems of domination and control? I don't say always men, you know, using domestic violence because that's not the case, but in particular coercive control. And they look to the patriarchy as, a, as an explanation because throughout human history women have been subjected to gendered violence and control and domination um, so they don't see it as an aberration. They see it as a natural consequence of patriarchy and men who believe that it's their right to install the power and privilege in the home and they use violence in order to maintain their tyranny. Um, I think so those two models are often at war with each other. Sometimes, I mean, there's people who cross over both and they're doing very effective work. 
But, you know, people who are really strict adherents of the psychopathology model, um, they think the gendered analysis is nonsense. Um, they think that all you've got to do is, is, is track it like a pathogen and find where did the violence begin and then go back and cure that. They don't, they don't you know, someone pointed out to me that they don't study gender, they don't study all these social issues and so they're actually not qualified and I think that's part of their alienation from the issue because they don't feel qualified so they're like, it's not relevant and it's like, is that right? Well, it's funny because statistically it looks like it is relevant. Um, the feminist model looks at the psychopathology models and doesn't trust it one little bit because it has constantly been, as I said, victim-blaming model and they think that if you look to a man's individual pathology, you're giving him an excuse. So your childhood or mental illness or whatever is just a filthy excuse for you using violence and you could still make the choice not to use violence. Um, and the problem is that they don't come together, they don't come together often enough and especially in policy. And I think what we need to do is look at, well, yes, why do men do this? But also why does this man do it? And there's an amazing woman in the United States, now sadly passed away, um, Ellen Pence, who's the co-founder of the Duluth model. And some of you may, that will probably sound alien to a lot of you, but it basically the Duluth model was the um, foundation for men's behaviour change programs. They were the first to really un understand how to run those. And they also designed what's called the power and control wheel, which really described what happens in domestic violence relationships. So really, really cutting edge, um, totally um, world leading in terms of understanding domestic violence. And as long ago as, I mean, it's 20 years ago, she wrote that in all her work with men, they'd really taken this whole approach of like, well, you do it for power and control, stop your filthy excuses, we don't want to hear why you do it, you don't know why you do it, we know why you do it, shut up. Um, but what she started to realise was that a lot of guys didn't identify with the fact that they did it because they wanted power and control, that that wasn't their driving motivation. And she started to realise like we're actually just looking for that singular answer just like the psychiatrists are just like the judges who say it's an alcohol problem you know we're doing the same thing and instead we should be listening to our own training which is the feminist training to look at the person and respond instead of just imposing a model on them like patriarchy says we should do and they started looking at well, what what is happening for individual guys and the revolutionary conclusion that they came to was that even though alcohol drug abuse mental illness is not the root cause of domestic abuse. Maybe if you address those problems inside individual men, you may be able to change their behaviour. And maybe you can't change their behaviour without addressing those problems first. Um, that's not... So, so she was, at, you know, the perfect meeting point of the feminist accountability model, which says that this is a part, this is a part of a historical tradition, but also that taking that psychopathology model, which is like... This is also about the individual factors in each man's life. Um, but that really hasn't filtered through to Australia. I think we still take a very we, – we are – and I think to our credit, we've taken on the gendered analysis of violence probably almost better than any other country in the world and we're world leaders in that. And I would never want to see that harmed or, or threatened but we do need to start introducing some nuance into this and seeing men as having internal worlds, you know, not just being foot soldiers of the patriarchy – that these are men with their own histories and stories and that there's got to be a better way at coming at what they're doing. And, and one of the better ways is uh, you write about um, this um, 
pro project of focus deterrence. And there's also been some very interesting work done in Burke as well. Mm. So, yeah, these are two um, solutions to domestic abuse that I never thought I would actually discover because when I was writing the book, everybody I spoke to said, look, nothing works. We can't, we can't reduce domestic violence. All we can hope to do is to embark on long-term cultural change and programs in schools and try to stop the violence before it starts. And I just, I don't know, I guess th throughout my time of writing this book, I felt like every time I had a deadline approaching, time was running out because I still hadn't found the thing that worked. <laughs> um, but I felt desperate to find some proof that we could stop this now. And eventually, I think maybe it was three years in, it was only supposed to take six to eight months to write, um, but eventually I found this program uh, in High Point, North Carolina of all places, called Focus Deterrence. And essentially it was an adaptation of a strategy that was used on gun crime um, and had incredible results, uh, particularly in Boston where gun crime was just through the roof. And what it did is it basically it introduced a revolutionary idea, which is offenders are capable of rational decision-making. And it said if we can if we can make sure that there's a, a swift and strong justice deterrent but pair that really, really strong community response that basically says, gets all the community groups together, delivers a message to these offenders saying, we love you, we respect you, we want you to change and here are the, here are the alternatives to your life of criminality that we want to help you access. We are here for you. But if you choose not to take our advice or not to take our help and you choose to keep offending, you are now a priority for the justice system and you will not get away with it. And basically through a very strong collaboration between the justice system, police, prosecutors, federal marshals, parole officers, you name it, and the churches, <coughs> community groups and so on, they were able to basically create a situation where offenders could see an alternative and more importantly, could see that if they didn't see an alternative, their lives would be ruined. So, and they saw a 60% reduction in gun crime. It was the most radical reduction they'd ever seen. So the academic behind this, David Kennedy, thought, what's another really intractable problem that we might be able to, you know, use this strategy on? And obviously, domestic violence is perhaps the most intractable problem. Uh, so... He proposed using this and he got laughed out of town. The, the domestic violence sector said there's no way that you can appeal to their rationality. Nothing stops these men. All you can try to do is help the victims. So, but in High Point, there were two homicides in a fortnight, two murder-suicides in one fortnight, and it shocked the community. And the police suddenly went, you know, we've got to do something different. This is not working. They had... All of the, you know, proactive policing policies, everything that was being used all around the states, and this was about, I think it was about 2012, um, but nothing was working. So they decided we're going to declare domestic violence our number one public safety issue. And through an enormous amount of work, using the focused deterrence model, they brought together federal marshals, FBI, alcohol, tobacco and firearms, church groups, Freemasons, victim advocate groups, you know, employment groups, social service agencies, and they all got together and basically created a web to surround the perpetrator and the victim. They got data to see who were the most dangerous offenders through to the, the well, the people who'd just come into contact with the justice system, and they classed them from A, B, C, and D. 
The A-list offenders were the worst. They'd maybe had serial victims. So what they did there is they said, we're going to get you on any anything you've committed, any crime you've got in your history could be a misdemeanor, larceny, you name it. We're just the broken get you. window theory of policing. Exactly. Yeah. We're going, but we're not going to just use the. We're going to jerry rig the justice system to basically get you the worst punishment possible. And those people were held up as an example because they were sort of seemingly at the moment, at that time, unreformable. They were held up as a result, as an example to everybody else. But everyone else, it was said to them, "Look, that you don't want to be that person. Okay, let us help you." And there's an incredible scene in the book, which is the B list offenders. They're brought into a town hall meeting. There's 12 perpetrators sitting down the front. And they're in a community setting. Everybody knows that they're perpetrators of domestic violence. It's perhaps an unprecedented <coughs> public showing of um, and, and public accountability. All the community groups file in. They say, we love you, we respect you, we're against domestic violence, but we want to help you. <coughs> <coughs> And then the law enforcement files in and one by one they say exactly how they're going to change the system to make sure they get these guys. The FBI guy says, I can buy guns and dope and plant it on you. I will do whatever is in my power to get you. The federal marshal says, you used to be able to skip state lines. We now have you flagged in the system. The minute you skip over, you'll be flagged by the people over the border. You will not get away with it. The district attorney says, you're on my list at the courthouse. The minute you pop up for another domestic abuse offence, we're going to fast track your trial and the judge has been instructed to give you the heaviest penalty possible. I mean, it just went one by one where you're just like, wow, this is absolutely terrifying. And at the end of it, they went to the victims of these 12 men and said, how did it go? (coughs) And the victims were so appreciative because they said, you made it about you and them, not about us. It wasn't our responsibility to maintain our own safety and it worked. So the reduction in domestic homicide in that town, it went down by (coughs) two-thirds. Which is an extraordinary statistic, isn't it, really? When you see that millions and billions of dollars have been spent on trying to prevent domestic violence and that one had that result on presumably not very costly. No, in fact it saves money. They didn't have to invest any money in it. It just They just changed the way they did policing. They, and the fact is they're all spending so much time in their siloed off sort of areas, individually working away at the same issue but not collaborating. So by collaborating and working on a case management basis, they were actually being more effective and actually it's taking them less time because, you know, domestic violence for the police there was their most dangerous call-out. It can result in incredible abuse for police. It can result in death for police. They never know what call-out is going to be the one that ends up putting their officers in danger. So it's in their own interests to take this so much more seriously and to prioritise it the way it already is being prioritised for them by the fact of it being so common. In Australia, there's a domestic violence call-out every two minutes. And you never know whether it's going to be because some guy standing outside the house demanding his credit card or it's going to be because someone's got the wife and kids locked in a bathroom and has got a, an axe and is hiding under the house, you know. So this is already a public safety issue that far outstrips any other public safety issue we have, but we don't prioritise it like that. And that's the thing. The, the, the things that work are community-based solutions 
that unite everyone who's already working on this issue, brings them together to, to uh, make the, visi the perpetrator visible and to ensure that the victim does not have to take responsibility for her own safety anymore. That's really, really important. And promises a swift justice response. Because unless the perpetrator is told that, that they can't get away with it anymore, it's worth taking a punt, right? They feel mm. like it's a private domain, mm. you know, and the message we give them is that if you're not so stupid as to leave marks on your victim, you probably will get away with it. Mm. Okay. Mm. Um, everyone, uh, thanks so much for coming out in this terrible weather. I'd just like to thank Jess Hill very much. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Writers Festival 2019. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronwritersfestival.com. Mm -hmm.